Glad you're here. If you have your Bibles, we are continuing our verse-by-verse study through the book of Philippians. We've reached chapter 4 already. Already. It's been like, what, six months. But hey, no. We are in chapter 4 looking at the first five verses. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand. Stewards up. He's got some new Bibles in his hand. He can bring one right to your seat so you can follow along with us. Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 5 this morning. Sounds like you're already there. That's great. It's quick. Well, we've been in the book for six months. We know where it's at. So, hey. <laughs> All right. Starting in verse 1, we read, Therefore, my beloved and long for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. I implore Judea and I implore Sintiche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labor with me in the gospel with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. The title of my study this morning is Dealing with Joy Robbers. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together, to be in this place, to be in your word And to know that your Holy Spirit desires to touch our hearts and speak to our hearts. And so, Lord, for our part, we just need to have open ears to receive all that you have for us. We also pray, Father, if there's anyone here that is yet to commit their hearts and life to to you, Lord, to surrender their life to Jesus Christ, to accept their offer of forgiveness that you have for them. Lord, today would be the day of salvation for them. Lord, we thank you for this time together. We ask that you'd bless it, keep us attentive to your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You know, there's all sorts of joy robbers that are out there. I think we know what they are. Joy robbers are things that just suck the joy right out of us. And you get up in the morning and you're feeling pretty good. You had a great night's sleep and you're ready for a fine day and you're bouncing into the kitchen to get your cup of coffee and you notice there's this huge puddle of water on the floor by your refrigerator. Quit the night before, so you got to buy a new one. Oh, man, that could be a joy robber. So you go, all right, clean it up. You're late to work, so you go a little bit faster, so then you should. Suddenly you see the flashing lights behind you. You drive away with that $100 ticket. That's a joy robber. So you get to work. Your boss informs you that the company is suspending all overtime, and you are going to use that overtime to pay for the new refrigerator and the ticket you just got. You're going, oh, man, that's a joy robber. Joy robbers are the, the, the stuff of life, the curveballs that make us want to not get out of bed in the morning, the things that can turn our smiles into frowns. They can kill the spring in our step and start us popping the Advil, you know, every four hours. So what do we do about them? I think about the old bumper sticker that used to say, life happens. And it does. Life happens. There's nothing we can do about that. Curveballs are going to keep coming until we get to heaven. Your, your life, my life, is not going to be perfect until then. We can't stop the stuff of life from happening, but we can be prepared for them so that when they do come, we don't allow ourselves to be ripped off, our joy to be robbed from us. Because listen, we all face battles. As Christians, we know we fight the big three, the world, the flesh, and the devil. But that battle is often closest 
to home. It's that regular, everyday stuff in life that we face. So Paul here in chapter 4 gives us ways to fight the battles we all face in life that rob us of our joy. In fact, most scholars look at the first nine chapters of chapter 4 here as marching orders. Orders to be victorious over joy robbers. Notice he says in verse 1 there, stand fast. That's one exhortation. Going down further, he says, I implore. Another one, I urge you. Going down even further, he says, rejoice in the Lord. Uh, Further down, be anxious for nothing. Meditate on these things, these these commands, these marching orders, these battle plans for us to fight against the would-be joy robbers in our lives. Well, let's look at how to deal with these certain joy robbers we find in our text here. Specifically in verses 1 through 5, if you're taking notes, we're going to see three things. Number one, dealing with detractors. Number two, dealing with disunity. And number three, dealing with despondency. Three things that can all be joy robbers in our lives. Number one, dealing with detractors. Look at verse 1. It says, Therefore, my beloved and long for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. Paul begins chapter 4 connecting what he just finished saying in chapter 3. If you remember, we talked about the joy that comes from maturity. Paul is tying his thoughts together when he says, therefore, and then just to show just how much he really cares for this church, he calls them my beloved and longed for brethren, my joy and crown. Now remember, one of the ending thoughts of chapter 3 was the fact that they're in the church of Philippi, there were these legalistic people called Judaizers, joy robbers. Uh, you know, Paul said in chapter 3 that they were enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly. These enemies of the cross of Christ are trying to rob you of your joy by saying you must follow the law in order to be saved. The man must must be circumcised in order to have true salvation, that Jesus' death on the cross wasn't sufficient enough to save you, to cover all of your sin. So Paul says, therefore, because of that, you need to stand your ground. You need to stand fast against these detractors. Perhaps the church there was feeling maybe the temptation to do nothing. Maybe just to kind of sit around and go with the flow, take the abuse of these legalists, uh, to let these evil false teachers do and say, whatever, no big deal. I think more than likely they were intimidated by them. You know, legalistic people can be pretty intimidating. In the same way, you and I are surrounded on a daily basis by all sorts of people from different backgrounds. Maybe it's people at work or, or, or those you hang out with at school or at home that doesn't share your values. And perhaps maybe you feel outnumbered by unbelievers. And, and you've faced, you know, with that crowd pressure, that peer pressure that really puts tremendous pressure upon you. And you're being tempted to become kind of unstable or really to not take a strong stand, to kind of go along with the flow and and their value system, avoiding making waves. And you're being intimidated by their message every single day. You get the temptation to give in to peer pressure. It's like the old fable that tells about the elderly man who was traveling with a boy and a donkey. As they walked through the village, the man was leading the donkey and the boy was walking behind. The townspeople said the old man was a fool for not riding. So, to please them, he climbed up on the animal's back. When they came to the next village, the people said the old man was cruel to make the child walk behind uh, them while he enjoyed the ride. So, to please them, he got off and set the boy on the animal's back and continued on his way. Well, then they get to the third village and the people accused the child of being lazy for making the old man walk. 
and suggested that uh, both should ride. So the man climbed on with the boy and they set off again. Well, in the fourth village, the townspeople were indignant at the cruelty to the donkey because it was made for you know, the two people were, were carrying him. And so frustrated, uh, you know, the frustrated man was last seen carrying the donkey down the road. Peer pressure is one of the strongest forces on earth and the tendency is for us to become unstable, to give in. Paul says, don't do it. Don't give in to peer pressure. Stand fast. Let me tell you, today we are facing peer pressure like never before as Christians. It seems everywhere we look, our religious freedoms are being attacked. Sinful behavior is being accepted while Christian beliefs and standards are being trampled on either by big businesses changing their bathroom policy to allow men to go into women's restrooms, to colleges and universities that hold very liberal, anti-Christian worldviews and push to silence anyone who disagrees with them, to the big push in the media world to promote and support immoral behavior. Put it all together and we see the Christian values are under attack like never before. In fact, a group known as First Liberty did an annual study on the hostility to religion in America, and they found that the rate of recorded incidents of hostility to religion has more than doubled in the last four years. They say that their research has uncovered what respected social scientists have called irrational hatred of conservative Christians by upper-income, highly educated, influential sector of culture. Let me tell you, The battle is here. It's not coming. It's here. And it's facing the church today. It's here. Now, one option is, you know, we can ignore the battle, pretend it doesn't exist. Another option is to cave into peer pressure, to compromise and just go with the flow because, well, that's just the way that the world is. Or the third option is to do what Paul says here, stand fast. Now, I'm not saying that we need to go and picket and boycott places that don't hold our Christian view. Because if that were the case, I think we'd only eat at Chick-fil-A, we'd only shop at Hobby Lobby, I would only buy clothes at Forever 21. I mean, it's like, you know, I don't know, we would buy your groceries, but because they're all Christian-owned companies. What I am saying is that we are in a battle, and we're not to let the godless or moral worldviews change us and cause us to compromise or cause us to rob us of our joy when faced with peer pressure. We must stand Fast, because there will always be enemies of the cross who will come in and try and pull you away from your relationship with the Lord. As with the Philippians, these false teachers were telling the church that their salvation was incomplete. They needed to, to do this and to do that, follow the law if they were truly going to be saved. In the same way, there will always be those that come knocking on your door and they want to sell you another Jesus other than the Jesus in the Bible. And they'll seek to bring confusion into your life. And they'll tell you, well, the Jesus isn't really God, but the Son of God. He's the brother of Lucifer. Or they'll tell you that, well, there's another testament to the Bible that was given to a man named Joseph Smith from the angel Moroni. Let me tell you, it's phony baloney, okay? It's not true. Paul says, stand firm. In fact, in the Greek, it's, it's be immovable persevere, or most, most literally, be stationary. See, if we don't want to be a victim of a joy robber, then we must deal with these distract, detractors. Now, of course, to deal with them, we need to know what is right and what is true, and we need to stick with it. 
We need to know our Bibles. We need to know God's Word. And we need to be ready, as Peter says in 1 Peter 3.15, to sanctify the Lord God in our hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks for the reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and in fear. In other words, stand fast upon the Word of God. Stand firm. Don't waver. Back in 1980, there was a young man from Rwanda who was forced by his tribe to either renounce Christ or face certain death. He refused to renounce Christ, and he was killed on the spot. But the night before, uh, he had written the following commitment letter, which was found in his room after his death, and it goes like this. He writes, I'm a part of the fellowship of the unashamed. The die has been cast. I have stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I'm a disciple of his, and I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed. My present makes sense. Sense. My future is secure. I'm done and finished with low living, sight walking, small planning, smooth knees, colorless dreams, tamed visions, mundane talking, cheap living, and dwarfed goals. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotions, plaudits, or popularity. I don't have to be right or first or tops or recognized or praised or rewarded. I live by faith lean on His presence, walk by patience, lift by prayer, and labor by the Holy Spirit power. My face is set, my gate is fast, my goal is heaven, my road may be narrow, my way rough, my companion few, but my guide is reliable, and my mission is clear. I will not be bought, compromised, deterred, lured away, turned back, deluded or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice or hesitate in the presence of the adversary. I will not negotiate at the table of the enemy, ponder at the pool of popularity, or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I won't give up, shut up, or let up until I have stayed up, stored up, prayed up, paid up, and preached up for the cause of Christ. I am a disciple of Jesus. I must give until I drop, preach until all know, and work until he comes. And when he does come from his own, for his own, he will have no problem recognizing me. My colors will be clear. I like that. It sums up the statement that Paul is saying here. Stand fast for the Lord. That's how you deal with detractors. You don't let them distract you. You stick with who you know and what you know. And this brings us to our second joy robber, which is dealing with disunity. Number two, look at verse two. I implore Judea and I implore Sintiche to be of the same mind in the Lord. So now we have a case of disunity between two ladies. Now, we've never heard of these ladies before because they're never mentioned anywhere else in Scripture. This is the only time they're mentioned. Now, think about this. How would you like to go down in history knowing that your name was in the Bible for all to read because you couldn't get along with another lady in the church? Man. All because of an argument or a disagreement that you had with a brother or sister in church. I mean, to have your name mentioned in the Bible is one thing, but to be known as a woman who cannot get along, I mean, it's, a, it's another. And I thought about this. If God were still writing in His Word, and He was going to put your name down in the Bible, what would He say about you? What would you be known for? What would the one thing that would be notable about your life that, that would be recorded? Well, we have these two ladies, Judea and Sintuche, not getting along, not living in unity. Now, what's ironic is the meaning of their names. 
Yudia means sweet fragrance, and Sintiche means affable. I don't think they're living up to their names. Now, as we look over, uh, back over Paul's letter, we see that all throughout his letter, Paul had been reminding the Philippians that they should walk in unity, knowing that if they do, it's going to bring them joy. He prayed for them in, in, in uh, chapter 1 that their love for one another might abound more and more. In that same chapter, he exhorted them to stand fast in one spirit with one mind. Then in chapter 2, verse 2, he he told them to be of one accord of one mind. In chapter 3, verse 16, he said, let us walk by the same rule. Let us mind the same thing. Now we come to chapter 4. We now know why he's been repeating this message over and over and over again, because there's a unity problem, a problem between Yudia and Sintiche. So disruptive was this controversy between these two women that someone has said if the Philippians were Paul's crown, then Yudia and Sintiche had become the two thorns in Paul's crown. Paul knew that when two people are the odds in church, it doesn't just affect those two people. There's, there's a ripple effect. Their uh, disharmony affects their friends and their friends' friends and their friends' friends and the small circle gets bigger and bigger. They needed unity. It's been said that two chickens tied at the legs and thrown over a clothesline may be united, but they don't have unity. That's why God takes this issue of uh, unity so serious. In fact, an example of it in 1 Corinthians 1.10, Paul says this. He says, I appeal to you, dear brothers and sisters, by the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ, to live in harmony with each other. Let there be no divisions in the church. Rather, be of one mind united in thought and purpose. Because division undermines the spiritual interaction that God intends for us to have with each other within the church. D.L. Moody once said, I've never yet known the Spirit of God to work where the Lord's people were divided. Disunity introduces negativity that makes it difficult for the Holy Spirit to work among us. I think anyone that has felt the pain of, of violent church arguments knows how terrible they could be. And it could be a real joy robber, a, a thief of your joy. Now, we don't really know what the argument was about here. But we have enough information in these two verses to know how to fix the problem, to know how to deal with this disunity. First of all, we see, though, that these were prominent women. Verse 3 tells us they labored with Paul in the gospel. In other words, they probably were the first ladies, women that Paul met when he got into Philippi. I think if you've been with us on Wednesday nights, as we've been going through the book of Acts, you remember back in Acts chapter 16, when the church first got started, Paul had a vision, a call from the man from Macedonia to come over and to help. Paul was obedient to that vision and goes over to Philippi. He finds some women who are meeting there at the riverside praying together. It was their custom to pray there every Saturday there at the river. Now, the reason for this was that there was no Jewish synagogue in Philippi at the time. In order to establish a Jewish synagogue in the city, you needed at least 10 adult males to start it. So since there was no synagogue, that would mean that there were not 10 Jewish males in that city to establish one. Now, I don't know if they were there and they didn't come together, they didn't want to start it, or if it just wasn't there. But I do think of of Deborah there in the book of Judges chapter 4 who rose up and went with the men to battle because the men would not go without her. 
You know, that she had to go. I read one title of the study of Deborah called Strong Woman versus Weak-Kneed Wimpy Men. Talking about how men are not taking the spiritual leadership as they should, and so the women have to step and do maybe what they're not called to do because the men aren't doing it. Well, in the same way, in lieu of ten men to step up and start a synagogue, the woman stepped up and said, you know what, we're going to meet. They go down to the, to the river, they're by the riverside. And among these women there who met for prayer was probably these two gals, Judea and Sintiche, along with Lydia. You recall she was a seller of purple when she first gave her life to Christ. So see, these were, you might say, the founding mothers of the church. But Paul really owed a debt to them and, and, and to the many women who had enough faith and enough courage to stay by the work and, and get it started in the early days. And you look back in the Christian faith, it would be hard to imagine what it would be like if it weren't the the powerful influence of godly women stepping up and, 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 and working. There are many godly women in our fellowship here. And I'm thankful for them and they're a great blessing to me personally, but they're also a great blessing to us as a church. Now with that said, the Philippian church that was started by women was now being torn apart by these two women. And there's a, there's a reason for this. And my point in this is Satan's most effective arrows his hottest and, and, and most flaming darts and attacks, I believe, are against those who are the most effective. Against those who are the most active for their faith. So if you can sit back and go, well, you know, Satan really never hassles me. That's probably not a good sign. There's a reason he leaves you alone. You're, you're ineffective. You're, you're no threat to him. But if you're effective and God is really using you, you know, uh, you can expect to be pulled into the fighting ring and get attacked. And these ladies, they fell for it. So how does Paul deal with it? Two ways. Number one, he faces it head on. Honestly, uh, speaking the truth, uh, faces it head on. Very strongly, very firmly, he says in verse 2, I implore you, or another translation, I beg you, you need to deal with this. One translation puts it, uh, I urge Judea and Sintiche to iron out their differences and make up. God doesn't want his children holding grudges. See, the problem was they were both at fault. It wasn't just one person's fault. They were both to blame. And that usually is the case, by the way. Whenever there's an argument or a disagreement, both parties usually share some of the blame. And I've heard it all. I've done a lot of marriage counseling. And, and you'll hear, well, it's not my fault at all. It's all him. My only fault is I married him. And he'll say, well, it's not my fault, it's your fault because you married me. You know, it goes back and forth. No, it's both your faults and you need to recognize that. That's what Paul is saying here. But notice the solution. Paul says, here's what you need to do. Verse 2, you need to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I love that phrase, in the Lord. Paul uses it a lot. He used it here in verse 1 and again in verse 2. Be the same mind in the Lord. Verse 4, rejoice in the Lord. He's not just kind of haphazardly throwing that phrase around. He's making a specific point. He's saying to these two women, in dealing with your disunity, you need to, to move your argument from the flesh to the spirit. You need to look at this situation from a heavenly perspective. The one person you've left out of the argument is the Lord. Be of the same mind in the Lord. Make His glory your goal. Make His will your will. So Paul attacks this, this uh, joy robber head on. He tells them the truth. They need to deal with this. You know, and so should we. You know, if you have a situation like that, man, go to the person involved 
or to the squabbling group involved and talk to them directly. Don't go to 40 other people who, who are not involved and tell them about it. You know, just go to the one person one-on-one directly and you settle your differences. And if that doesn't work, then you take it to the next step. Paul calls for a backup here. That's number two in how to deal with disunity. Call for backup. You know, if a battle is too big in the material world, police, what? They, they call for backup. Officer needs assistance. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, it's good. In the same way, spiritually, if the battle is going nowhere fast and the argument keeps going on and on, it could be time to call in backup. That's what Paul does here. Look at verse 3. He says, I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose name are in the book of life. Now, Paul makes reference to an individual named True Companion, asking this person to help these women. Now, we don't know who he or she is. A lot of commentaries uh, think that this was an actual name of a person, uh, True Companion, because it translates Sisygus. You know, maybe you can call them Gus for short. I don't know. Paul is asking Gus to, to help these two women work out their differences. Because he also mentioned some other people specifically by name in this passage. So it seems to be the best translation. You know, he's saying, I urge you, Sisygus, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, to help these ladies get along. And here's why Paul says this. See, occasionally there exists a problem between two people that they just can't seem to fix. And it just seems to be getting worse and worse. And every time they engage and try to work it out, it becomes worse because more emotions get caught up in the situation, in the play. It's at that point where where an objective third party must be brought in, where the emotions aren't there, where Paul is saying here, uh, that's what Paul is saying here. You know, Jesus speaks of this as well in Matthew chapter 18. But see, Paul's first approach was to deal with it head on, one on one. If that doesn't work, it might be time to bring someone on the outside of the situation to be brought in to help these two get along in the Lord to resolve the issues. But Paul puts it this way in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1 and 2. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness, considering yourself lest you also be tempted, bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. In other words, here you have a case for how to deal with disunity and not have your joy robbed. You get help. Call for backup. You have spiritual people helping other spiritual people resolve their differences with God's resources. That's what this is. So what do you do if, when you have a problem and you can't seem to resolve it? You can A, run to 13 of your friends and get them to agree with you, which seems like what these, these ladies were doing, or B, you can get an objective, uh, spiritual, mature third party to come in and help. Every now and then I'll get people that, that, you know, they'll come to me and they'll, they'll say, well, you know, I did go to the counselor, but, but it, it really didn't do me any good. It really didn't help, you know. So I went to another counselor. And they really couldn't help me either. So I've been to three counselors and none of them could help me. It could be the problem. It's not the counselor, you know, didn't any good. You didn't hear what you wanted to hear from the counselor. So you left, searching to find what you wanted to hear. Or you say, that counselor actually told me that I was wrong. Can you believe that? The nerve of him. And then they had the nerve to back it up with Scripture. Can you believe that? Who do they think that they are? I'll tell you who they think they are. They're the ones trying to help you. They're the ones that God has placed in your life through the power of the Holy Spirit to try to help you get through that time of difficulty that you're having. 
Yes, biblical counsel is so needed today, but more so is men and women to have open hearts to receive that biblical counseling. Proverbs 18, verse 2 reminds us that fools have no interest in understanding. They only want to air their own opinions. In other words, a foolish person says, I don't care what you have to say. I I just want to vent. Man, I I just want to tell you what's on my heart. I'm going to do all the talking. Oh, you know, that doesn't deal with, with disunity at all. See, here's the point in dealing with disunity. First, it needs to be the direct head-on approach. If that doesn't work, bring other spiritual people to help solve the problem. Listen, the greatest resource we have, folks, is called the body of Christ. It's the church. In fact, one commentator said that this true companion uh, is not a, a, just one person. He's talking about the whole church because verse 1 of chapter 1 says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and the deacons. In other words, each person in this church could have and should have felt that it was their obligation to help these two women live in harmony in the Lord. Let me say say this, folks. There are people around you right now with spiritual gifts, with the fruits of the Holy Spirit in their life that could be a great help to you if we would just open up our life to them and stop trying to fight these battles alone. There's people around you. Share with them. Open your heart to them. Proverbs 12, 15 tells us, The way of the fool is right in his own eyes, but he who heeds counsel is wise. And that would have been a great scripture to give these two ladies in Philippi. Because they both thought that they were right in their own eyes. Listen, Sintuche, you know I'm right. Wise up. Well, you listen, Yudia. Yudia need to listen to me. You're the wrong here. Everyone was wrong here. I'm right. Each one thinking they were right in their own eyes, they become fools. But he who heeds counsel is wise. See, if each person in the church had this common purpose of unity, the division would fall apart and joy would reign. The Lord would reign. Now I want to add one more thing that Paul reminds us, uh, reminds these two squabbling ladies here, and that is in verse 3, he says that all their names are written in the book of life. He says, Help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement, also the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. In other words, Paul is saying, let me remind you, you and I are going to spend eternity together, so you might as well learn to get along while you're still here on this earth. Your name is written down in the book of life. Revelation 20.15, John refers to this book of life when he says, And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Remember when we had our studies to the churches, the seven churches, the church of Sardis. Revelation 3.5, Jesus said, He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. The book of life, it's important, it's important that your name is found in the book of life. David Jeremiah speaks of this book of life in his book called Escape the Coming Night. And he says concerning the book of life, I quote, This book is an amazing record. It will contain the name of every single person born into the world. If by the time a person dies, he has not received God's provision of sacrifice to remove his sin, his name will be blotted out of the pages. As each person steps forward, God will open various books pointing out what was required to have been accepted as a child of God. When he solemnly opens the book of life and begins to look down this immense directory for the person's name, 
His gentle hand will turn the pages, wishing to find the name of the accused. Paul is reminding Yudia and Sintiche, their names are there. Their names are in the book of life. It was his way of affirming that they were true believers and that they were going to spend eternity together and that they were indeed sisters in the Lord. And since they were going to spend eternity together, they needed to redeem the time and get along. Because, verse 2, he says, you belong to the Lord. Settle your disagreement. Listen, we don't know if we have tomorrow. As a church, we need to understand that, that all we have is right now. Now, because that's what's important. We don't know when God is going to call any of us home. I mean, no one ever thinks that he's going to be them that's going to die suddenly. It's always the other guy, the other gal. But we should never take for granted and assume that we're going to live forever because this could be your last week. This could be the last time that you will get a chance to, to, to be a part of this fellowship. This will be the last time that, that you have a chance to raise your hands in church to praise God. The last time you sing praise songs here. This could be, again, the last time you're part of this church. I don't know. I mean, I hope not, unless it's the rapture. Then I hope for our sake that all of us are out of here. But right now, we have now. Right now, if you're a Christian, if you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, your name is written in the book of life. And right now, you have a duty to pray hard, to minister strong, to sing with all your heart, and to get along with each other the best that you can. You get the idea. We've got right now. We know we have that. Tomorrow's grace is not a guarantee. So right now, let's all get together and get along. We've got right now. So Paul, in urging these ladies to unity, I think he also, I remember, we remember that in the church of Ephesus, he had the same desire for them as well. He said this in Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. He says this, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. I like that word endeavoring there. It speaks of, of speed. It speaks of, of haste, of dispatch. It speaks of getting down to business. You see, there should be this eager enthusiasm for we as a people to maintain a sense of unity and peace. Not turmoil, not uh, uh, friction, not factions, but let's all stay together. We're to, to rush to stay together. Let me give you an illustration of this uh, before we move to our final point. Let's imagine for a moment that you're in your house and you've fallen down and you can't get up. You don't have a clapper, okay? So... You generally need some help. So, so you're in this place of pain. You're in this place, you're, you're struggling, and, and you cry out, I'm hurting. And you stretch towards the phone, and you grab the phone, and you dial 911. And, and you're certain they're going to send help right away because it's their job to do that. They're going to come, and they're going to give you their attention. But right now, in that station, that place that they call, that emergency vehicle is stalled. It, it's stopped. It's not going anywhere. Why? Well, because... There's two guys right now, and they're there, and, and they're in front of the station, and they're kind of debating the best way to get to your house. kind of goes like this. Well, he lives towards Nixon, so we can go up Battlefield Road to Campbell and then head down towards Nixon. No, 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 no. That's not the way. My way is much better. We need to hop on the 65, go down to the 60, then, then get off on Campbell, then forget Battlefield. It's too long. 
No, 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 I get it. Let's go up to Sunshine, go out towards, towards Campbell, you know, we'll cut across Sunset to get together. That's the way to do it. And the whole time you're laying down on the floor going, oh, no, pain and ouch, ouch. Now, now for, for you to even think for a moment that while you're in that pain that you have these professionals debating on directions, it would be devastating. Christians, that happens in the church all the time. There are people outside these four walls of this building and they're in pain and they're crying out for help. They're searching for answers, screaming for salvation. And then the church, we're going, I can't believe so-and-so said I, what they did. Uh, he called himself a Christian. And what about that new guy? I mean, what church did they come from? And I don't like the way he worships. I, I like the way she dresses. Come on, what are we doing? There are people in pain outside these four walls of this church. And the, in the church, we're majoring on minors. Now, I'm not saying we do this as a church. You know, we just happen to be here in the text here this morning. But the point is clear. Paul is saying, endeavor, make haste, get busy. Don't let the everyday issues that, uh, in life that come up rob us of our joy, cause division in our lives, that we lose focus on the world that so desperately needs to hear the gospel. So do your best to walk in unity. Why? Because we have so much in common. We've got the same God. We've got the same goal. We've got the same marching orders. We've got the same address. Our names are, are written in the book of life. So that when you find yourself in disunity with each other, robbed of joy, we should realize what we have in common. Get along with each other. This brings us to our final point, dealing with despondency. Look at verse 4 and 5. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Now, as I said in the beginning of the study, these words are commands. They're marching orders. Paul is saying, in dealing with despondency, here's a solution. Rejoice. Rejoice. Now, that's not just rejoicing for the sake of rejoicing. It's rejoicing. Notice that it says, in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice. Now, why does Paul say that here? Well, think about it. If you're in a battle with legalistic people, argumentative people and they've come into the church and they're arguing about how to get right with God. You got to keep the law of Moses and, and your men need to be circumcised. Fighting that battle long enough and fighting the battle between these two ladies that couldn't get along. It's enough to make anyone despondent. It's enough to make anyone discouraged. Besides all of that, the church in Philippi knew that Paul was in prison, that their friend Epaphroditus had been sick and almost died, as we have studied. So that the church knew this. They, they could have really been discouraged and despondent. So Paul gives a solution to their despondency. He says rejoice. But notice the condition. It's in the Lord. I mean, isn't that a great reason to rejoice? It's where we hang out. In the Lord. It's a phrase that describes the Christian life. It's in the Lord. Now let me say this. Joy is the best advertisement for the Christian life. Do you know that? There's nothing like authentic joy. It's infectious. It's like, wow. And that person is so happy, so, so joyful, so stable, so steady. That's why we're told to rejoice. It's a command. We're, we're to rejoice in the Lord. That's the condition. But then we're told when to rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Always. Always, Paul? I mean, come on. You don't know what I've been through or what I'm going through. It's kind of idealistic for you to say that. But understand what Paul is saying. He's not saying you know, you're always to live in this high, you know, 
pumped up state of euphoria. Oh, praise the Lord. And there's something great. And joy, 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 all day long. That's not, that, that's, that's unrealistic. It's irritating. It's dangerous. Someone may want to come up and punch you in the face. You know what I mean? But the idea is much more profound than that. It's much deeper. It's a deep sense of peace and inner contentment that comes from spiritual realities in your life that you really believe in. It's an inward joy that those apart from Christ do not have. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 6.10 concerning himself that he, being sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. And that's the way Paul lived. Especially when he first came to Philippi. Remember that? He was arrested. He was thrown in jail. The story goes at midnight, Paul and Silas in chains, in shackles. At midnight, they started singing praises to God. And I, and I love that at midnight after being beaten, there they are singing love songs to the Lord. And the Lord must have liked it because there was an earthquake and the chains and the shackles were broken loose. One pastor said it's because God was tapping his feet to the praise songs. But remember the Philippian jailer came running to Paul uh, and asked him what? He said, what must I do to be saved? Now, do you think that if Paul and Silas would have at midnight started to grumble and complain and moan and argue with each other as to why they were in jail? It's your fault. No, it's your fault. Well, if you haven't said that, you know, that the jailer would have said, what must I do to be saved? No, he would have said, what must I do to not be like either one of you? What a great advertisement the joy of the Lord is. So ask yourself the question this morning, does joy permeate your life? Does it? Does laughter ring out in your home? Final verse, Paul says, let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. First he says, let your gentleness be known to all men. Now, it's very tempting when we get around legalists, like in our text here, you get around argumentative people, it's tempting to become a little bit harsh yourself. You know, kind of wears on you. And anger can surface quite easily. And you can start to become rough with people. And sometimes we do it even in the name of the Lord. You know, you start having these, these verse battles against each other. Well, yeah, the Bible says, you know, you start throwing verses at each other to attack people. Now, I'm not saying there isn't a time that we have to be firm and maybe offer gentle rebuke and gentle, but it should be a gentle rebuke. Let your gentleness be known to all men, it says. Do you know what gentleness means? It means to be easygoing. Let your sweet reasonableness be known to all men, is one translation. It's a word that describes leniency and mercy to people who have sinned and are at fault. Very important Philippians to hear, especially after having those two argumentative women in their midst. Help them. Yes, definitely. Stand up against false teaching. Absolutely. But to the new believers in Philippi, be gentle with them. Remember what it was like when you first came to the Lord as you were a new believer. Be gentle. I mean, it's, it's a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Remember Galatians 5. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. Maybe there's a conflict in your home this morning and this is touching a nerve. Here's part of the answer. Relax. Relax. Let up a little especially if you have kids in those teenage years. Be very careful. Because at that age, man, you, you could crush them. Maybe for some of you this morning, you have some hostility issues, anger issues that, that really have buried 
there that they're unresolved and you really are a drag to be around. I mean, people can't relax around you because you can't relax. Remember, Christian, you are following Jesus. He is the one who said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. Rest. Why should we do this? Because we're told at the end of verse 5, because the Lord is at hand. The Lord is at hand. Two meanings to that phrase, and then we'll close. Number one, the Lord is present, is what that means. Because the Lord is here in this place, because His presence always is always with us, Get along with each other. Seek to please them. Be joyful. But also the phrase, the Lord is at hand, is the Lord's return is very, very near. In other words, if you truly believe that the Lord could return at any moment, then it should affect the way that you live. It should cause to live joyful lives. It should cause you to not be distracted by the things of this world, but to stand stand firm, walk in unity, and not be discouraged. In fact, the phrase, the Lord is at hand, can also be translated Maranatha. The Lord is coming. Man, that's quite wonderful. And that should cause all of us to rejoice. So as we close, do you have joy? Are you a victim of the joy robber? Kind of like the McDonald burglar, you know, the McBurglar, whatever it's called. The joy robber, you know, I don't know. Maybe you need to deal with some disunity that you experience with a brother or sister. I encourage you today... Make things right before Jesus comes back. You know, the worst thing you want to be, and I've shared this before, the last place I want to be is arguing with my wife when the Lord comes back. I said to you, you know, you, well, you said it. Oh, hi, Lord. <laughs> what were you saying, Tom? Uh, no, nothing, Lord. Well, you know, you don't want to be there. You see, encourage today, I encourage you to make things right before Jesus returns. See, the best hope that we have against anything that would seek to steal our joy is to know that God loves us And he is returning for us very, very soon. Are you ready for his return? As I said, none of us are guaranteed tomorrow. We only have right now. And if you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, I pray that you would come to know him this morning as your Lord and as your Savior. And then you will experience a joy that you've never experienced before in your life. The joy that comes from knowing Jesus. How do you do it? Admit you're a sinner. Be willing to turn from your sin and put your complete faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. He'll pardon you. He'll forgive you of your sin, everything you've ever committed. He'll make you born again, give you a new life, and you can start experiencing this joy that we've been talking about. The Bible says, Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. If you don't know Christ this morning, I encourage you, Give your life to Him. Experience that joy. Uh, and, and, and as soon as service is over, the elders are up front. They're up front after every service. I encourage you to come up, talk to them, tell them, hey, I want to give my life to Christ. They'll pray with you. They'll give you a Bible. They'll help you in that walk with the Lord. To the rest of us, don't get distracted. Stay away from disunity and be encouraged. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this time. We thank You for Your Word. How powerful it is, Lord, to affect our lives and and all the areas of our lives, Lord, but even some of these areas that are really close to our hearts and close to home. Lord, the problems that we get when we get discouraged and we lose our joy or when we have conflicts with brothers and sisters in the Lord. Lord, or when we are tempted to, to give in to peer pressure. Lord, you've given us your Holy Spirit to stand firm upon you, upon your word. 
Help us to do that, Lord. Help us to seek help from counsel from other strong believers if we need that, Lord. Lord, because we want to glorify you. We want to be ready for your return. And Father, I pray right now if there's anyone here that's not ready for your return, but they want to be, they want their sin forgiven, they want to be born again, I pray, Lord, that they would not leave this place without making that commitment to you today. That they would take the step forward, they would come and talk to one of the elders, one of the leaders here, and give their life to you. So important, Lord, knowing that your return is near. Lord, give us that joy that we long for. Help us to keep our hearts and minds focused on you, remembering it's all through your grace and mercy that you saved us. Nothing of ourselves, it's all you. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand with